Morning, church. It's good to see you. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Apparently, we have a lot of people still uh, out of town, but I'm glad you all braved the rain, got out here. Um, we are working through our series on the life of David, um, our series called In Search of a King. And this section that we just read is one of my favorite stories uh, in, in the Bible. And today, we're looking at a snapshot in the life of David and his band of, of soldiers. Now, whenever, we've talked about this every single sermon since we've been here. In fact, we probably make reference to it every time we we preach from the Old Testament. Whenever a pastor preaches from the Old Testament, it's critical to emphasize a key principle, that the Bible is not so much about us as it is about Jesus. In other words, the Bible is not so much about what we have to do as much as it is about what God has done for us through Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus teaches specifically, teaches us specifically to read the Old Testament this way. And when we do, God's grace overpowers us. God's grace fills us with courage. God's grace brings us true rest. God's grace liberates us from condemnation and and fills our hearts with a desire to glorify God and to worship him with our lives. So with that in mind, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a little time to, to break down the story. And then we'll look at three lessons that we learn about us. And then, more importantly, Three lessons about what we learn about King Jesus, all right? So let's jump right into the story. First, I'm going to give you a little background, all right? David was anointed to be king when he was just a boy. But for years, he was on the run. He was a fugitive. King Saul wanted to kill David to protect his throne. And so in a time of total desperation, David hides in the cave of Adullam. We talked about that last week. And while he's in the cave, 600 men who were loyal to David gather around him, and these become the mighty men of David. And David molds them into a guerrilla army that protects the people of Israel from their enemies. And the reason he has to protect the people of Israel from their enemies while he's on the run is because Saul is too busy trying to track down David and kill him and the people who are loyal to him. Well, Saul eventually dies. And when David takes the throne, the mighty men become his military elite. They become his his chiefs of staff in his, his cabinet. Now, the story that we just read takes place several years after David became king. And here's the situation. Here's the context. The Philistines have invaded Israel again. And in fact, this time, they have captured David's hometown, which is Bethlehem. Now, they are poised to take Jerusalem, Israel's capital. It is so dangerous that that David flees Jerusalem and returns to the cave of Adullam. But you know what? It's even more serious. Verse 13 tells us that this was during the harvest time. And the author points out that it was during the harvest time to actually tell us it's a lot more dangerous than it might appear at first because if the Philistines burn the crops, the people of Israel will starve to death. So right here, the Philistines have the upper hand and they are on the verge of totally crushing Israel. 
at this point, we hear David, a weary warrior, sigh. And he says, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, you need to know when he says this, he doesn't say this because he's thirsty. David is not thirsty. He wouldn't you know, set up a stronghold without a source of water. What's, what David is longing for is something more than just water. David is longing for assurance. David is, is wrestling with God's promises. I mean, it looks like they're about to be wiped out, and he's, he's wrestling with this because God had promised to give Israel the land. God promised to establish peace. God promised to set up David as the king. God promised that, that, that he would be with David, but now it looks like Israel will be wiped out, and so he's struggling with doubt. He longs for that water because if he could drink from that well, it would mean that God had kept his promises. Have you ever been there? When life just gets dark and you doubt God's promises and you're wondering, you know what, how can I really know that God is with me? Because it doesn't feel like he's with me. Maybe it feels like your whole life has been turned upside down because of an illness or because your marriage fell apart or because, you know, your relationship with your kids, your parents is, is broken because, you know, of a financial loss, you lost your job or whatever it is. Or it's, and you're wondering, how can I really know that God is actually working all things together for good? Maybe you worry about dying. And you wonder, how can I know that death is not the end? How can I know that God's promise is true, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? And so you sigh. If only I could just have a sign that would assure me that God's promises are true. Well, David is wrestling with this lack of assurance, and so he sighs. If only can I, if I could have a drink from this well in, in Bethlehem. And when he says that, three of David's mighty men overhear him. And their king's wish becomes their command. Now they know that the situation is grim. It is bleak. But they also know that if they can bring back water from the well of Bethlehem, that David would be uh, assured, his faith would be bolstered, and the entire army would be inspired. And so they risk everything on the promises of God, and they go. The scriptures put it this way in verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Okay, what these three men do here is nothing short of amazing, all right? I mean, if this were made into a movie, it would be an epic summer blockbuster, okay? This could have been one of the, the, the most famous adventures in history, but the Bible describes it with just one sentence. No hype, just the facts, a handful of words. And that's it. But what they did was truly astonishing, 
Here, look, here's, let me unpack that. They push seven miles one way through enemy territory. The Philistine army controlled Bethlehem, and there were two strategic places that would have been heavily guarded, and that would have been the city gate and the city well because the Philistines didn't want the Israelites to storm the gate or to poison the well. And we know that these three guys didn't like sneak in all covert or anything like that because it says that they broke through. They fight their way through the enemy lines. They fight up the hill to the gate of Bethlehem and they fight their way through the gate to the well. And when they get to the well, two of of the mighty men hold off the Philistines, all of the Philistines, while the third one draws water from the well. Now what do they have to do? That's right. They have to go back. They have to fight their way back out. And, and, and imagine the faces of the Philistines. Oh, man, what these, these, guys, these three guys are crazy. What did they get? Did they get gold? Did they get weapons? Did they get hostages? No, they got a cup of water. A cup of water? Yes, Water. And so the three mighty men fight their way out of, out of Bethlehem, back through the enemy lines, and then run seven miles back to the cave. I'm getting a cramp just thinking about all the running. These three come back to David with their gift. And they give this gift to David, and they tell him how they got it. And David is astonished. David takes the water, he looks at it, he thinks about what these three men did to bring him that cup of water, and he lifts it up, and he pours it out on the ground. It forms a puddle, and then sinks into the dirt, and it's gone. Why in the world did he do that? He just pours it out? After all of that, what about that 14-mile round-trip ultimate fighting marathon that just did? What about all the danger and the lives that were risked? Well, in verse 17, David says this. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Instead, it says, he poured it out to the Lord. Why? This was a drink offering, a costly drink offering unto God. And David is saying, I do not deserve this sacrifice. I do not deserve this devotion from these men. God does. Now, this right here is the decisive turning point. The Philistines were completely, totally demoralized, and they're thinking, if just three men could break through our enemy lines and get a cup of water and then bring it back out, we don't stand a chance. These mighty men bet their lives on the promises of God, and God proved faithful. This is an amazing story, right? 
It really is. But now the question is, so what, right? Well, remember, whenever you read the, the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we need to ask, what do we learn about King Jesus? That is by far the most important question we can ask. But there are also some things that we do learn about us. So first, let's look, if you're taking notes, three quick lessons about us, and then three lessons about Jesus. So first, about us. Listen very carefully. This is critical. The first one is anything that you think you earned is actually a gift from God. All right? Anything you think that you've earned is actually a gift from God. Now, here's the thing. Most people today aren't extremely extravagantly, sacrificially uh, generous. I mean, we're all, we're all like that. Why? Because so often we don't view what we have as a gift. It's mine. I earned it. I deserve it. I'm going to keep it. Right? And when David takes this cup of water and he pours it out, he is saying, I don't deserve this. I didn't earn it. And at the same time, he's also reminding the mighty men that their great, amazing accomplishment was a gift from God. In other words, he's saying, you know what? Sure, you are a six-foot, five-inch, lean, mean, fighting machine, but do you think you earned that? It was a gift from God, so pour it out. Let me ask you all something. Has God blessed you? Now, it's so easy to think, whether consciously or subconsciously, yeah, but you know what? I worked hard for it. I'm sure you did. But let me ask you another question. Who gave you the ability to work hard for it? Don't you see? Everything is a gift. We should be incredibly humble and then just willingly with great joy share what we have with others, just pour it out. We don't deserve the glory God does, right? Next, you might not just think this, this, uh, this point applies to all of you, but it does. Leaders should point people to God and not exploit them. See, every single one of you, whether you think it or, or think so or not, you're, every single one of you are a, a leader in one way, shape, or form. God's put you in a position of one form or another to have influence on, on somebody else, right? Whether you're a leader in your home or among your friends or, or at work or in the church, your role is to point people to God, not exploit them. And here's the thing, you know, leadership involves a lot of heavy responsibilities, right? And often as leaders, we think, you know what, we deserve everything that we get. If someone brings us water from the well of Bethlehem, we say, it is about time. And where's the ice? And my lemon wedge, Right? But David takes the water and he pours it out before the Lord. I am not worthy of this devotion. It looks like you're really serving me, but you're really serving the Lord. 
And that is why his soldiers were so devoted to him. Yes, I mean, he was their commander, but he was also a servant of the Lord. And so he took the devotion that was given to him and he gave it to God so that he would receive all of the glory. Now, here's the thing. As leaders, there are times where you may receive heroic devotion from people. People who not only want to obey God, but also want to express their deep devotion to him. And what's amazing is that in their loyalty to God, very often they become incredibly loyal to you. And sometimes, sometimes your sigh, your wish becomes their command. They go out of their way to help you. They go out of their way to do things for you that we just don't deserve. But they are trusting in the promises of God. And when that happens, pour it out. Remember that you don't deserve that kind of devotion God does. The third lesson for us is this. Your king's wish becomes your command. Now, you'll only get this one if you understand the difference between a religious person and a Christian. A religious person focuses on the rules. A Christian focuses on God's heart. A religious person says, What can I do to get what I really want from God? A Christian says, God is absolutely everything I need, and I don't need anything else. A religious person works for some big oppressive boss in the sky. A Christian works for a king that they love with all of their heart. Now, in this translation, the first word in verse 16 is the word then. Maybe in your translation, it's so. I love that. In verse 15, David sighs for water, and the next thing it says, then or so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. No discussion, no debate, no worry. It just simply says, So they went. They were not focused on the rules. They didn't think, there's no rule. I don't have to do that. They were focused on the king's heart. Now, I'm going to pull away from my notes for a second. And here's why. It is real easy for us to look at stories like this, these these heroic battles, these these mighty men, and feel like a disconnect from them. Like, that that was them. And we don't even begin to start wrestling with how can this be Um, relevant or applied or useful to my everyday life. And we totally short circuit. We don't even look for ways. We just kind of disconnect because it's, I don't know, it's an awesome story about awesome people. All right. So I don't know if this will help or not. I hope that it does. We'll see. On Friday, my daughter 
had a friend over to spend the night. I decided I was going to make dinner. I was going to make a taco bar. So I break out all the, the, the veggies that I'm going to prepare, and I chop the serrano chili peppers. I chop the tomatoes. I chop the onions. I chop the cilantro, and I chop the tip of my finger. And I go, and I get a paper towel and wrap it up. And I'm trying not to say anything because my wife's in the other room and I know it'll just mess her up. Last time I cut myself like this was over 20 years ago when I was installing carpet. And when Shannon saw the blood back then, she got all woozy like this, you know. And I thought she was messing around until she fell over and bashed her head on the concrete floor. I was all, oh, geez, why she's not messing around at all. Or, or when my son tries to gross out his mom, my wife, she'll like sneak up on her and show her a picture of somebody's hand with a nail through it or something like that, and she'll like punch him right in the arm, and Dakota thinks it's hilarious, right? <laughs> Shannon does not. It messes her up, right? So I cut my finger, and I want to protect Shannon from this, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay. She's like, no, you're not. You're grunting. I can tell that you're in pain right now, right? I'm like, don't worry about it. So I, I uh, throw the piece that I chopped off in the trash and, and cleaned everything, <laughs> and then cleaned every, everything up and, and kept trying to work with, with one hand, and, and um, I put on like three Band-Aids right away. The next day, I need, it's obvious I needed to change the Band-Aids, and they are stuck to the wound. And I can't, I'm like, <clears throat> so I hear you grunting again, I know you're in pain. I, let me help you. I'm like, no, 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 don't worry. Let me help you. I'm like, you're going to get woozy and fall over and faint, bash your head open, and it'll be horrible. Don't do it. She's all, let me help you. And so she gets some warm water for me, and she has me soak the bandage in it, and it comes off. She's all, now let me put a Band-Aid on it. I'm all, if you do that, you have to look at it. I know. So she gets the Neosporin and a Band-Aid, and I take it off, and she's like, and she's Putting, trying to fix it. She's like mustering all the strength she can and her face just turns pale and she has that look like I'm going to pass out and throw up at the same time. And she had that look on her face for about 30 minutes. And afterwards, I, I, I told her, look, baby, I could have done this myself. Why did you insist on, on helping me when it would be so difficult for you? She's all, because I love you. Because I care about you. Because I was worried about you and I wanted to help. And so she pushed through, right? When you love somebody that much, you push through. We love our children so much. We push through. We love our parents so much. We push through. We sacrifice, even though it's like difficult, but you love that person and so you push through, right? Every day, little things, big things. The love that martyrs had for Jesus started with just wanting to love, express their love and devotion to God in the everyday small things of life. And because of their love for Jesus, they not only, you know, they not only served Jesus in the small things, but even when it came to sacrificing their own lives because they loved Jesus, and, and they wanted to give up their lives for the cause of Christ, they were able to do it. because Not because it was just some rule. 
because they had a heart for their king. And so we want to glorify God in every, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. So where is God leading you? What is he calling you to do that you don't like simply because you love Jesus and you want him to be glorified? Not just because there's a rule, and there may very well be one. It may be like black and white, the, you know, the law of God, this is what honors God, this dishonors God. But our hearts are cold, so we quibble about it. I'm sure he's not serious about that or this. What is it that God's calling you to stop doing simply because you want to glorify God with your life? Anything come to mind? Several things maybe? I've got a whole list that come to my mind right now. It's not, the law is important, but the law never changed, saved anybody or changed anybody. It's when we have love for our King Jesus that the law becomes useful for us and shows us how we can express our desire to glorify him and love him. So my question is, this morning, is Jesus your king? Do you love your king? Would you do anything for your king? In the small, everyday things of life and maybe even big sacrificial things. Not because, you know, you got to do this, but because you want to express your loyalty. You want to express your love. You want to express the worthiness of God and your devotion to him. Because your king's wish is your command and it's become your top priority. And you structure your entire lives around that. That is the mark of a Christian. Your king's wish becomes your command. Now, it's really tempting for me to close in prayer right now and get to lunch. But as important as these, these three lessons are, there is no power in them in and of themselves. They actually can become a useless, useless, destructive burden unless we also see what we learn about King Jesus. The heroes are in this story for the primary purpose of pointing us to the true hero, of, for pointing us to who King Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we got to ask, what do we learn about Jesus, right? The first thing we learn is that Jesus receives our devotion, and he pours it out to the Father. Now, David was a great leader, but he was also a sinful leader. It's well documented. This, you know, this chapter ends with a list of some of David's mighty men. And when you get to the last name in that list in verse 39, you know what name is there? The last name on that list is Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember that name from another story? Earlier, another time, when David's men went out to war, David stayed behind and lusted after Bathsheba while her husband was fighting in David's army. And so while Bathsheba's husband was out Fighting for David, David sends for Bathsheba, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. 
And so David plans a cover-up. He sends for Bathsheba's husband to return to come home from the battlefield, and they get together, uh, David and, and, and Bathsheba's husband, they get together, they hang out, they talk, they drink wine, and then David sends him home to spend the night with his wife. David's trying to be slick here because, I mean, if he can get Bathsheba's husband to go home to be with Bathsheba, then David would be off the hook and no one would know. But Bathsheba's husband refused to go to the comfort of his home and his wife while his men were in the battlefield, living in tents, eating MREs, and facing great danger. Instead, he slept at the door of David's palace like a sentry on guard. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. Uriah was loyal to his men. He was loyal to his wife. He was loyal to God, and he was loyal to David. And David took the loyalty of Uriah and poured it down the toilet. So then David writes a letter to his field commander, Joab, and told Joab to put Uriah at the front line where the fighting was the fiercest and then draw back the other soldiers so that Uriah would be killed. David takes this letter, seals it. Uriah does not know what's in the letter, obviously. David hands it to Uriah to deliver to Joab, which Uriah faithfully does. Joab does exactly what he's commanded to do, and Uriah is killed. David betrayed Uriah's loyalty. (laughs) Why in the world would the author of of 2 Samuel here, include Uriah's name. I mean, why'd he spoil the story's ending by dredging up this dirty laundry? Well, David was a great leader, but he was also a sinner who needed a savior too. So, the Bible drives us to look For the one king that is worthy of our trust, that is worthy of our sacrifice, that is worthy of our loyalty. Now, I know some of you have been betrayed by people that you trusted. You were burned by people even though you were totally loyal to them. And now you're gun shy, you're cautious, you hold back from being wholehearted, daring, loyal, and and devoted. But listen, Ultimately, your loyalty is to King Jesus. And in his loyal love, Jesus receives our acts of devotion, even though they are tarnished by sinful motives at time, and and he purifies them, and he takes your cup of water, he rejoices over it, and he pours it out before the Father with thanksgiving. (laughs) That's amazing to me. Even though we are not totally loyal to him, he is totally loyal to us. You know what? In the list of followers of King Jesus, there is no Uriah the Hittite. Meaning, 
that there is none that Jesus betrays. King Jesus' loyalty to you never, ever ceases. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus from this story. He receives our devotion and he pours it out to the Father. Second, Jesus breaks through enemy lines for us. Jesus has heard your sigh. He has heard your sigh for living water. He has heard your, your sigh for an eternal home, your sigh for everything that's wrong in the world to be set right. He knows your thirst, and he knows your restlessness, and he loves you dearly. And so he broke through the enemy line for you. Not at the risk of his life, but at the very cost of his life. At the cost of his life, he drew water from the wells of salvation so that you could be assured of victory. And the last thing I'll mention is this. Jesus gives us assurance that God's promises are true. What gave David assurance of victory? It was a cup of water, right? That water was a sign that pointed to the sacrifice of these three men. David looked at the cup of water, realized that God had, what God had done through these three men, and he was absolutely confident of victory. But here's what I want us all to know, is that you can have far more assurance than David ever did. You know, when, when King Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, he deliberately uses a cup and he says, this cup of wine is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. That cup is a sign that points to the sacrifice of God the Son. And we look at the cup and we see what God has done for us through Jesus and we can be absolutely confident of victory, no matter what it is that you are facing in this life. David held up the cup, a cup of water and he said, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Then we hold up the cup of the new covenant and we say, is it not the blood of the one who went at the cost of his life? David poured out his water because it became like Blood and Jesus poured out his blood because it became our living water. And to believe in Jesus is to drink living water from the well of eternal life. So, when you see in the table, when you think about the mighty devotion and love King Jesus has for you, you will totally, absolutely love your king and be totally devoted to him. You will be mighty for him and his wish will become your command and you will break through any line and you will take on any risk and you'll pay any price and you'll do anything for your king and your hope and strength will be in his victory. Remember this. Remember that David is back in this cave 
Remember when we talked about it last week? He's back in the cave. He is not ruling from a mountaintop. He's not ruling from his palace. But here's the deal. It is while he is desperate in the cave that water comes to him. And when you see that, you realize that it's in the caves of life that your loving Father hears your sigh. It's in the caves that that God brings us living water. It's in the caves that God assures us of the victory that we have in Christ. It is in the caves that we see God stand by his promise and make good on his promise when he says, I will be with you always. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. So often we get angry at you when it seems like our world is is falling apart. And even when we are disloyal to you and you lovingly discipline us to to, to bring us back to um, the life that truly is best for us, we we blame you for the tough things in in our life. God, we thank you that you are so patient with us. That you make promises like he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ and then you make good on those promises. God, I want to pray for those uh, who are hurting right now. Who are struggling right now, people who've been betrayed or the things that they look to for security have been taken away. God, help all of us to find our security in you, our satisfaction in you, our rest in you. Fill us with humility knowing that all good things come from you. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that King Jesus made for us. Taking the wrath that we deserved and then raising from the grave to conquer death and to give us eternal life to assure us of victory. God, fill our hearts with humility and peace and rest and courage total devotion to you because Jesus was devoted to us. And show us how we can apply uh, that, that gospel in every area of our life and the small things and the great things. God, make us more loyal to you because of Jesus. We pray these things in your name.